Shalom and welcome to the Matzav podcast brought to you from New York City by the Israel Policy Forum. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications and Digital Director at IPF. And I'm Noah Schusterman, the Research and Communications Fellow. Earlier this week, Jason Greenblatt, Trump's Special Representative for International Negotiations, announced that he will be arriving soon in Israel and the Palestinian territories again. This time, along with Jared Kushner and Dina Powell, to continue promoting Trump's peace initiative and the ultimate deal. His visits are often described by the White House as successful and productive, and Greenblatt dedicated them to meeting with all groups of Israeli and Palestinian society. From religious clergy to political leaders, Palestinian refugees, settlers, students, nonprofits, and even the Arab League summit. Jared Kushner, Trump's special advisor and son in law, also arrived in the region in June, meeting with Netanyahu and Abbas in pursuit of reviving the peace process. Unlike Greenblatt's optimism, Kushner was recently recorded saying to interns in Washington, D.C., that he is not sure a peace deal is possible. With Trump, Netanyahu, and Abbas all preoccupied with domestic issues and their own political survival, the confidence in the administration's success to help the sides engage in a meaningful peace process seems out of touch from reality. and It's very unclear what news the Trump delegation might bring. We want to welcome via phone Scott Lesensky, a former diplomat in the Obama administration and a senior advisor to Ambassadors Suzanne Rice, Samantha Power, and most recently Daniel Shapiro. Scott is a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies and wrote extensively about the role of American leadership in resolving the Israeli-Arab conflict. He is also the co-author of The Peace Puzzle, America's Quest for Arab-Israeli Peace. Hey, Scott. Hi, Noah. Hi, Eli. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks for joining us. Um, so what is the reason for the current trip? Do we know? You know, there's always a certain degree of opaqueness um, when these kinds of visits are announced. Um, but, but it's pretty easy to divine, given the setting, um, the ongoing stalemate on the ground, very dangerous, but long-running stalemate, uh, and the administration's own goals, which have been very ambitious. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, I think it's relatively easy to divine at least two uh, reasons, two purposes for the trip, and perhaps a third. Um, so one is, I'd call it management. Uh, the conflict is at a um, sort of seems to be on a perennial precipice, the tension in Jerusalem, for example, a few weeks ago. Um, some might even, I think 100 years from now, might look back and see this just long-running um, uh, sort of in, in instability, this unstable long tail from the Kerry peace effort in the Gaza War in 2014, three years now of, of, um, of, of very difficult, intense uh, relations. And, you know, there's something to be said for managing the conflict. And, and often a, a perfectly or let's say an even adequately calibrated uh, visit from outside mediator, mediators, particularly in the United States, that kind of a visit can have a, a dampening effect. Uh, the parties want to be on their best behavior. Uh, there's an incentive to sort of cooperate given all kinds of uh, interests in getting along with the United States, particularly a new American administration. Uh, um, a, a trip that's calibrated poorly can lead to conflict um, depending on how uh, the Americans manage things. You know, there have been in the past uh, protests when an American mediator or secretary of state or someone else you know, comes down on the ground. I have to... Um, have to give, I think we should all give the administration a lot of credit. They've managed their visits from Greenblatt, the envoy, uh, through Kushner and up to the president in his May visit. They've managed their visits pretty 
uh, pretty well, and the visits, uh, in my view, have had a somewhat calming effect on an otherwise very uh, unstable uh, situation. So management number one. Number two, uh, I see this visit very much as continuing a six-month listening tour now where this new administration, which has uh, promised very ambitious uh, peacemaking effort and is also stepping in at a relative low point uh, in the conflict, you know, they're, they're all years. There's a little bit of uh, dismissiveness or disdain towards past initiatives. There's some um, new priorities about which kinds of parties to engage with. Um, Greenblatt, for example, has met with settler leaders, something Americans uh, hadn't done before, uh, I think is a very a positive and, and refreshing change, minor change, but an important one nonetheless. Um, so there's a conflict management backdrop. Uh, there's a backdrop of this ongoing listening tour to try to hear from the parties and feel them out for what might be possible um, to get out of what's a very unstable a stalemate now. You know, the third purpose, I think it's hard to know. The question is, are, are they selling? Is this administration in the mode yet where they're selling, where they have an initiative, they have a framework for negotiations or for other measures? Um, it's not clear. Their commitment's very strong. Um, and they're on the hook because the president himself has set very ambitious goals, but it's not clear yet if they have something to sell. Um, but we'll see. Um, and so I think you're 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 quite right in that it it was a listening tour. And the first couple of visits from Greenblatt, um, I mean, he posted on Twitter pictures of every meeting and everybody after the meeting just said he was such a good listener. He really wanted to learn the facts. But then on the most recent visit during the end of June, where Kushner accompanied him. Um, there was that report in Haaretz about uh, Palestinian officials being greatly disappointed and saying that all of a sudden they sounded like Netanyahu advisors and not fair arbitrators. So is Kushner going back there a sign that he's going to try to mend the wounds he created? Um, I'm not sure he's created wounds. You know, the, the whole realm of the media is um, always a little bit opaque uh, in the Arab-Israeli context for decades now. All sides have used the media, and Israelis are quite famous for this, for you know, planting stories and trying to manipulate perceptions, and you know, ultimately everything leaks um, in this conflict. Uh, you know, right now, the, uh, if you step back, the administration seems to be in a place where it's very, it's, you know, they have all kinds of um, uh, questions and issues and occasionally crises like this week at home um, but in many settings overseas, there's still a tremendous amount of, uh, of interest, respect, some would even say um, uh, fear occasionally, um, and I would put the Arab-Israeli setting uh, in that category. And you know, at the end of the day, uh, the, these first uh, seven, eight months, uh, it, you know, it's, it seems hard for any of the parties to say no to the Trump administration. So they're on this listening tour. Um, the envoys are trying to craft a new initiative. And they're very fortunate to be in a place, I think, where the parties, uh, from the leaders on down, feel like they can't say no. Uh, they may leak some discomfort here or there on one tactical question or another, but um, the big picture is one of, um, of a certain, certain kind of opportunity. It, it won't be without a limit, and it certainly uh, it could evaporate very quickly in a real crisis, um, or just over time if they can't deliver. Um, uh, but right now, the administration is really benefiting from this. Um, you know, others uh, have called it a fear factor. Let's just call it, um, you know, everybody's trying to get off on, a, on the right foot with the new American president. We've seen it before, um, and we're seeing it again now.
Under the current uh, political restraints, with uh, Netanyahu being under extensive investigation, um, Dakhlan and Hamas are seeking to take over the Palestinian Authority, and Abbas has his um, health issues. Um, Trump's administration is constantly changing, his people are changing. Um, is it feasible to think of negotiations in the near future? Uh, great question. Um, you know, negotiations, uh, direct Arab-Israeli negotiations, which, you know, for many decades, uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, were, you know, a dream, um, even through the 80s, even up to Madrid, uh, long after the Israel-Egypt peace agreement, most Arab countries still weren't willing to sit down with Israel. Madrid was the, was the breakthrough. You had 10 years, a full decade of direct Arab-Israeli negotiations, Madrid plus Oslo, uh, under both Bush the father and Clinton. But now we've seen nearly 20 years of, of, um, of the opposite, Bush the son, Bush 43, just a little over a year, let's say, of face-to-face Israeli-Arab, mostly Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Uh, under Obama, two major initiatives wound up with still less than a year of, uh, of revealed meeting negotiations out of, out of eight. And, and that framework, that, that sort of traditional uh, notion of Arabs and Israelis negotiating face-to-face, uh, breaking decades of, um, um, you know, of prior conflict, that, that model seems to be either um, not appropriate to the new context or perhaps it's run its course. So, you know, it's fair, for, I think it's a fair question for this new administration to ask, you know, could they do things differently? Uh, um, should direct negotiations be on the table, but part of what's called a mix and match? Uh, approach or an a la carte to use a you know, cafeteria um, metaphor uh, together with other initiatives um, other ideas um, is there less you know the question a lot of people are asking is there less interest in negotiations simply because that's what the let's say the last administration tried or for polemical reasons or because maybe they practically look unworkable um, you know to be honest you can spe- I think you can speculate all you want but no, it's honestly, it's hard to know. And campaign rhetoric is one thing, and when and governance is another. And I think we see now it's month seven, I guess. Um, and the administration has sort of slowly, particularly in this issue, but steadily moved away from some of its campaign rhetoric and is falling back into what I would call a very traditional American approach of trying to feel out what's possible, uh, use all the assets we bring to the table, which are political uh, and security, as well as our leadership position in the international community. And they're trying to feel out, you know, what's possible. Um, uh, uh, do, you know, are they bringing creative ideas on this trip? Again, I, as I said before, it's hard to know if they're ready to, to be in a selling mode right now. I think they're listening uh, and trying to manage the conflict. Uh, I think that's definitely true. And uh, Trump, in an interview before he was elected, he said that if he was elected, he would know within six months whether a deal is, is possible. And I don't think he has that answer yet. Um, But I'll ask you about something that the administration, it seems like it's been a conscious decision to not mention the two-state solution. They mentioned the ultimate deal at almost every occasion, but in in very few, if not maybe in, I don't think in any official press uh, press conferences or or press statements have they said two-state solution. So do they think there's another alternative, or do they maybe do they want to give more room for Netanyahu to maybe navigate in his coalition, which is a coalition that the majority of its members oppose two states? What do you think it is? 
It's it, it's a great question. Uh, there was that moment back in February when the uh, the I think the prime minister visited Washington February March, um, and he stood side by side with the new president, uh, and he didn't he didn't talk about a two state solution. And as you as you rightly point out, there's been a, a lot of what seems to be pointed hesitancy to repeat what had become a long-standing talking point of the United States. Um, there are a lot of theories. You know, ultimately, it's all about uh, speculation. I, I think the more interesting question, at least for the time being, is what, what you also pointed to, which is this, um, this language about the ultimate deal, uh, which the president repeated uh, through the campaign and now into, the, um, uh, into his uh, term in office. You know, what does it mean? Well, number one, at least in my mind, it means that they're not succumbing, the president and his most senior advisors, they're not succumbing to a sense of fatalism, which would be very easy. You know, George Bush, Bush the son, apparently, you know, with Oslo falling apart at the seams and President Clinton in that final famous conversation on the morning of Bush's inauguration, you know, saying that don't trust Arafat and uh, look, I spent all this time and uh, this is what I've got to show for it. Uh, it's very easy to succumb to fatalism given where things stand now, but this president uh, did not, did not the campaign, isn't now. Um, I think that's part of the whole ultimate deal language and it's important it's important to know that they're not succumbing to fatalism and there's still a lot of ambition um uh, number two i think it also points to this what you know what i would call a very classic american approach which is to try to sit down and hammer out an arrangement uh, a, a, a notion that all conflicts are are resolvable whether it's bosnia korea or um you know or the arab israeli dispute and to me that's very heartening uh, and that's a sense of continuity there hasn't been that much continuity in other Arenas and in other sort of say, categories of of, um, of discourse, but there's this sort of overall sense of continuity. Even though at the same time, the president, like many of his predecessors, is looking for every way to distinguish himself from the previous president, uh, which is a recurring theme, back from when Clinton uh, tried to distinguish from Bush the father and uh, uh, Bush from Clinton and Obama from Bush. And uh, in, in the book, uh, the Peace Puzzle, uh, we talk a lot about it. This kind of discontinuity hasn't been all that uh, effective when it comes to our success in negotiating Arab-Israeli peace. So I, for one, am looking for a little bit more continuity uh, and less of the discontinuities, even if the meta-narrative in American politics has been one of uh, uh, discontinuities. Just one last quick point on this notion of the ultimate deal. He's also throwing you know, his most talented people and his most trusted, maybe this is most important in the Middle East context where the parties in their very Middle Eastern way tend to look um, immediately size up the envoys in terms of their relationship with the leader, he is putting his most talented and his most trusted advisors, now adding Dina Powell to the mix and of the um, of the other three, of uh, Friedman, Greenblatt, and Kushner. She has a little bit more experience in dealing with the Middle East and is, is um, and can bring that experience to um, to this, uh, this new initiative. So I have to admit that I feel a bit confused. I mean, for now from our conversation, but also from, you know, from the past few months, it's very unclear to what we're heading. I mean, we're not talking about two-state solution. We're, it's not sure whether or not we're talking about negotiations or some sort of other creative method. I feel like we don't really know what to anticipate, which is something that's, um, I would say, quite characteristic to Trump. But on the other hand, I wonder how can the political leaders navigate themselves with such an unpredictable atmosphere? 
<laughs> no, I think it's okay for you to be confused. I, I'm, a lot of people are confused, and there are contradictory signs and signals. Uh, the president wants to do things across the board in foreign policy that they differ from President Obama, and yet on the Arab-Israeli issue, having an envoy, continuing our aid programs for the most part, um, the, the style of engagement. There's, there's a lot more continuity than change, even if the meta-narrative is one of, I'm going to do it differently. Um, that, well, at the same time, you have leaders who aren't putting forward initiatives. We're probably at a low point in terms of domestic initiatives, local initiatives, uh, Arab leaders around the region, uh, Palestinian leadership, Israeli leadership. No one is really putting forward um, frameworks, ideas, initiatives. Um, no one locally is selling. We're not sure yet what we want to sell. Um, on one hand, we want to do things differently than they were done before, but on the other hand, you see, um, and Eli mentioned that uh, Greenblatt's tweets, you know, those tweets, if you had sort of changed the name, uh, and uh, let's say some of our past envoys, uh, George Mitchell or Dennis Ross or whomever was into Twitter, uh, you'd find actually much more in common. Um, so it is a little bit confusing. There are contradictory signals. Um, no one's, um, I think, doing anything, no, no party, particularly the United States, isn't doing anything rash, throwing, let's say, throwing an initiative on the table, not consulting with the parties. Uh, let's say issuing an invitation, say, come here, we're going to have a peace summit. Um, I think uh, any kind of rash moves right now would probably end up in failure and embarrassment. Um, so you know, where are we headed? It's not clear. Um, can some of how we practice diplomacy in the past become more digestible to the uh, Trump administration over time? I think so. Um, if a new initiative comes up from the region, will it sort of sweep the parties and sort of reorient the discourse in that direction? I think so. If the initiative comes from the wrong party, you know, I don't think anyone around the region is waiting, let's say, for a new French initiative, or a, uh, you, know, you, you fill in the blank. But if the right initiative comes up from a party in the region, or the U.S., or maybe the Quartet, or the Quartet, let's say, plus um, um, an Arab or two, a key regional interlocutor, I think that will start to define um, uh, where people are, are headed. Now, do you think that Greenblatt and Kushner, who are two American Jews with undeniable connections to Israel, can they really be impartial mediators? And can the Palestinians view them as such? I mean, also, you have the, the Taylor Force Act, which, uh, which just passed. Like, what, what does this really, what is the message to the Palestinians? Why would they, they trust this administration to be an honest broker? And maybe sure. also, if I can add, that maybe that's also well, the reason that they added recently Dina Powell to the mixture. Maybe because of this little um, problem of bias that could be perceived. Um, you know, I think le less about bias and more about you want the right talent. You want parties, uh, sorry, you want um, members of the team who understand uh, the parties, the history, the perspectives. You know, for example, there was um, a story around the Camp David a summit uh, with Bill Clinton, summer of 2000, where suddenly Jerusalem's on the table and the team lacked anyone with expertise on the Palestinian or the Arab position on uh, on Jerusalem. And they, they lacked expertise. Did they need an Arab or a Muslim member? It's less about personal um, uh, character traits and more about expertise and experience. Um, and she brings some of that. Um, and she's close. she seems close to the National Security Advisor and increasingly close uh, to the President. Um, I would sort of twist your question around a little bit, uh, partly drawing out some of the interviews for the for the book, um, which I wrote with uh, former Ambassador Dan Kurtzer and 
uh, Steve Spiegel, Bill Kwan, Shibley Talhami, we sat down, we actually did 105 interviews with Israelis, Arabs, Americans, uh, and others involved. And increasingly, as we went through the interviews with Arab interlocutors, uh, Palestinians and Jordanians and others, we kept coming back to the very question that you were asking, and, and their answers were often very similar. It wasn't about partiality or impartiality. The parties were concerned about effectiveness. They wanted American interlocutors, whether an envoy or a president, who were effective, who are successful. Uh, oftentimes, they anticipated partiality. They anticipated, they knew, they factored in the close U.S.-Israel alliance, and it was precisely, I remember in one interview where the, uh, the Jordanian interlocutor, interlocutor said, that's precisely why we turned to the U.S., because we know you have influence. Listen, when, when the, Israel and Egypt were negotiating, let's say, over Taba, the little strip of land between Sinai and the Negev, they went to arbitration. There you need fair, impartial, and the arbitration came down on the Egyptian side, and the Israelis stood by it. Um, but most days, in most settings, particularly a setting like today, it's not so much about partiality, it's about effectiveness. I think Palestinians today and, and other Arab uh, stakeholders um, in this process, they're looking for Americans who can be effective. They, and, and for the administration, I think when the team thinks about how best to develop their new uh, and you know, we all hope productive and effective relationships with, with the Arab interlocutors, it's very important that they know that they can be trusted, number one, that they will act honestly, number two, and number three, that they can be reliable. I think trust, honesty, reliability, in this setting, in this conflict with these players, that's the recipe for success. Um, do you think there are specific lessons that Greenblatt and Kushner are now um, Powell can take from previous attempts at peacemaking? Maybe one or two things that they should keep in mind for future attempts? Uh, I'll sort of boil it down. In, in the peace puzzle, we had a whole list of 10 or 11, I forget, in the concluding chapter. I'll boil it down to just two. Um, uh, other than birthdays and the, the holidays, we, we write, no one likes surprises. Um, surprise initiatives, um, you know, from Ronald Reagan up to uh, um, up to the present, the, the surprise initiatives have never uh, done very well. Initiatives that don't grow out of a lot of consultation. You can't show all your cards to the parties uh, because those who don't want to uh, uh, play ball will usually undermine you either uh, up front or through the media or somehow. But you got to have a lot of consultation before you put something on the table. Uh, it's very important to, to check in with all the parties. No one likes a surprise. Um, uh, and second, I would say it's very important to remain flexible. Flexibility, adaptability um, is very important. Finding out what's possible at any given moment and being ready uh, to seize an opportunity as conditions change are very important. Adaptability and flexibility, particularly in a setting like today where you don't have an ongoing peace process, where you don't have leaders in the region who are sort of jumping out in front and are, and are running ahead with peace initiatives, where, where we have to do uh, so much of the heavy lifting um, it's going to be um, absolutely critical. No surprises and uh, flexibility. Now, I want to talk about whether or not you're, you're optimistic. Um, and maybe if we can touch on the point about Netanyahu specifically, because it seems that if the United States want to really make a push on restarting this process, they're going to have to pick a fight with Netanyahu. Because right now, under his current not to mention the negotiations, 
under his current government, it seems that it would be very hard for him to convince his coalition parties to engage in in uh, in a peace process, in peace negotiations toward a two-state solution, or to take specific steps that have been suggested, be it transferring parts of area B, area C to area B, or giving the Palestinians greater control of the West Bank. Even a simple project like the expansion of Kalkilia, a Palestinian city near uh, near the Green Line, near Kfar Saba, was very problematic. So what can we expect, and are you optimistic? Well, what can you expect? I'll, I'll probably dodge that one artfully, otherwise I'd be working on Wall Street. Um, I wish I was better at prediction. Um, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm optimistic, uh, number one, uh, because I'm American. I think that's a very, um, I'm only half joking, that's a very American uh, perspective on international conflicts. We, we come with a lot of optimism, not just with a lot of power, both hard and soft, but you know, the American approach, as I mentioned before, uh, which, which parties all around the world reflect on. I've been in many track two dialogues and, and other settings where, you know, we Americans are always told by the foreigners, you know, you all are so optimistic and you always want to, you think every conflict is resolvable. And, you know, others around the world will often succumb to cynicism and especially fatalism. Uh, you know, conflict, certain conflicts are predestined and, and will go on. Uh, that's not, you know, we as Americans don't believe that. Um, but second, I'm optimistic because in the Arab-Israeli realm, we've proven, the United States has proven over many decades since we really jumped in um, in a big way in the 70s that we can do a lot, that we can step in and we can provide uh, negotiating frameworks and, and arrangements where we can often give to one party what they can't get from the other and create whole new possibilities in negotiations. We did it with Israel and Egypt. We did it with Israel and, the, and uh, Jordan. We tried to do it with Israelis and Palestinians. The, that great historic effort, Oslo, broke down for all kinds of reasons. Um, you know, we're, we're a player. We may be a silent player on some days, but we're always there. We're a player. We're the silent member. Every time the Israeli cabinet meets or this inner security cabinet, you know, we're there. The United States is there because of our political relationship, our economic uh, ties, especially because of our defense and security uh, relationship. We're influential at the UN. We're influential with other regional and international stakeholders. You know, we're deeply intertwined in this conflict. Um, and we've often shown that we can do we can do good things with that. Sometimes we fail. Um, uh, can we make a positive contribution today? I think absolutely without a doubt. Uh, is it going to be really hard because it's a it's been a long running and in many respects deepening stalemate, particularly when you look at the social level to see how societies have become very very um, detached from each other and in some senses public opinion has become quite. Um, uh, depressed, cynical, even radicalized. Sure, yes, absolutely. It's going to be a lot harder. Um, at a time like this, should we probably bring more modest objectives? Some of those that you mentioned yourself, certain trade-offs, security for uh, development and economic progress in the West Bank. Um, sure, yeah, I think we, we, we should be and we need to be relatively modest in what we're seeking to do, at least in our short-term objectives. Uh, at the same time, should we keep our eye on the prize and uh, remind the parties and the publics and ourselves that we're in this ultimately to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict, that this decades-long investment in Arab-Israeli peace isn't sustainable unless we keep slogging uh, year after year toward the ultimate goal of a comprehensive solution, even if it's way out in the future, absolutely. Um, so I'm very optimistic. I know it's a sort of small group, uh, puts me maybe in the minority these days, um, um, but uh, that's where I am. That's where I think 
we all should be. And, you know, to be honest, I'll, I just want to add, you know, as Americans at a time when uh, Israelis and their Arabs are, are so, you know, they may be physically very proximate, but they're so divided for all sorts of reasons, you know, living almost on different planets. It's important that outside parties inject some optimism and a sense of possibility. For example, there was a RAND study uh, about three years ago, I think, or two years ago, that looked at, tried to quantify the conflict and show what the costs were and what some of the potential upside is in a moment of conflict. And it preceded, it, it followed another RAND study 10 or 15 years ago that showed what a Palestinian state would look like. And they had something called the ARC, the Transportation Act. It was, it's important to put an alternative future in, in front of the parties. That's partly the role of the media. Our job isn't simply to get into a smoke-filled back room and come up with you know, new formulas on uh, where, to, where to draw a border between two states. Uh, it's also partly to inject optimism. We can do it through our political rhetoric. We can do it through our private consultations with the party. And we can do it with all of our tools, our economic assistance, our grant making. Uh, that's very important. And I, I have to add, it's very heartening and very, um, uh, it's very heartening and, and I'm very pleased to see that the Trump administration on, in many of those categories has been continuing what past administrations have, have done. Thank you very much, Scott. His book is The Peace Puzzle, America's Quest for Arab-Israeli Peace, co-authored by Daniel Kurtzer, William Quant, Stephen Spiegel, and Shibli Tilkhami. Thanks, Noah. Thanks, Eli. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow Israel Policy Forum on Facebook and Twitter. And check out our Matzav blog for the latest analysis on events in the region and on Greenblatt's upcoming trip. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.